Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Anoush Shekelian and I'm joined by my colleagues Stephen Bush and Alva Ray. Patrick Maguire's still on holiday, to discuss whether or not schools should open. And you ask us, what went wrong for the Liberal Democrats in the election? So there's been an ongoing row really since Boris Johnson did his statement to announce some of the loosening of the lockdown restrictions. The row is between the teaching unions and the government over when schools can go back and whether it's safe for teachers to go back to school. And why has this become such an ongoing row? I mean, what is the reason why? Because there's so much other controversy with sending people back to work. Why has this been been the one that has stood out? I, I think... This is going to sound really awful, but I, I suspect that actually, to be honest, because it's one of the ones where actually the trade-offs on both ends are also awful, I think there's something oddly attractive in politics and in kind of like discourse to something where you're basically guaranteed to be able to shout at something. On the one hand, we have the known impact of prolonged school closures on social mobility. Mm and on equality of opportunity and the greater risk of abuse and all of the downside negatives of keeping schools closed. On the other hand, you have some of the stuff we know we know about the novel coronavirus and some of the stuff we know we don't know about the novel coronavirus. And whichever one of those two kind of flashing red lights you choose to pay more attention to, you're probably making the wrong decision. And I kind of think that in an odd way, one of the reasons why it becomes so also, right, because ultimately, right, what is the one reliable thing that, that global governments have found to allow them to get out of this? It is the ability to test, track and isolate new cases once they've got the rate of transmission in the community down. And that's quite difficult and also quite technical a discussion. And I think one of the reasons is this, in an odd way, is a debate which really well lends itself to a return to traditional, in inverted commas, modes of politics and arguing but maybe that's just an unnecessary sort of like an unnecessarily jaundiced way of looking at it. No I think that definitely is right because it's interesting how you know it has fallen into that groove of it's almost it's almost like you can hear this sort of sigh of relief from politicians and others to 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 slip back into the into the sort of groove of pre-coronavirus political dividing lines in a way but actually when you speak to teachers about this what's interesting is that 
obviously teachers the ones who know most how the unions operate and can be very frustrated by the unions indeed sometimes and they say well look all of the unions are in agreement which is actually quite rare Mm. so this may be actually quite a different type of dispute to the usual clashes that we're used to because often things that teachers are dissatisfied with can be seen as something that's in opposition to headmasters and governors, for example. And so there's clashes between the different different bodies that represent the different workers in schools. But because they're all in agreement, that's kind of highlighted to teachers how much danger they could potentially be in. So I think that since the beginning of this crisis, I find that I've learned almost the most about what's going on and felt the most informed by speaking to my friends about it. So I think that speaking to my friends who are teachers has been really illuminating for me. And I have one friend who um, teaches in an inner city school in London where the entire school is on free school meals. And I think it's interesting that, I mean, I actually haven't spoken to someone who doesn't just have an extremely equivocal view on it in that it seems to me that everyone has a completely valid case that you know, teachers as well as parents are really, really worried about children, not just very disadvantaged children who are maybe in very, very troubled homes or who aren't really able to have their education supported by their parents, but even just, you know, like quite privileged children who are incredibly lonely at the moment or who are feeling incredibly isolated and and their mental health is suffering from not having contact with their peers at this quite important time. I think that, I mean, that's what I've heard from everyone and everyone's in agreement about that. But then there is some concern over whether you're putting teachers at risk. But I think maybe the thing, again, like thanks to my friends talking about this, I think the thing that is maybe missing from this discussion is an awareness of the comparative risk that teachers are are under at the moment anyway, in that schools aren't completely closed they are still open for the children of key workers which means that in my friend's school it's only about five children in the whole school coming in but it does mean that every member of teaching staff is going in at least you know once a fortnight on a rota to look after them and is still going on public transport across London and I appreciate that that won't be the case in every school or in every part of the country the risk would be a lot lower but you are still putting some teachers into contact with children who are sort of disproportionately likely to be in contact with someone who's a carrier of the virus because they're children of key workers. So many of them will be health workers or other people who are exposed. So like the risk is ongoing, but even before schools completely reopen and even in terms of like social distancing, apparently even with just five children, it's impossible to keep them social distance if they're very little so I think that, that like that's an important consideration, not necessarily an argument for or against, but these arguments about the risk that teachers are going to be under and and children, like that that already still applies at the yeah, moment. Yeah, I think yeah, I think what's been lost in some of this debate is the fact that lots of teachers have been putting themselves at risk for this whole time. I had a good text from a teacher friend of mine who I asked what he thought of the um, Daily Mail front page, which was basically imploring the unions to let our teachers be heroes by going in. And he just said, I am presently a hero for going in. If they just open that, that removes the option for me to be satisfying my own hero complex. (laughs) So, yeah, I think it's the same with construction workers as well. You know, that was another thing that Boris Johnson announced in the same statement that he wanted to encourage construction workers to go back to 
to the, the sites to start building again. But actually, you know, they'd never actually told them to stop. So a lot of those people have been have been working in dangerous conditions all of this time. So these new dates and, and loosening of restrictions that they've announced have just sort of shone a light on something that's been happening for weeks. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because, uh, you yeah, uh, know, so my block of flats is overlooks a primary school so yeah you can literally see the impossible challenge of getting primary school children to socially isolate playing out every day Mm. Uh, and I think it it probably has a larger than usual number of of key workers because of the nature of the borough uh, and yeah and the fact that there are several hospitals within its commuting distance etc etc and talking to teachers it's very clear as you say that in many ways actually the the open question here is to what extent can you actually provide a good standard of education, particularly if you are concerned about the impact for loneliness, social disadvantage, et cetera, et cetera, in a situation in which although the uh, rate of transition is down, we do still have quite a lot of cases. But it's just really difficult. And it's one of the things that I find odd about the way that the kind of political media complex has decided to approach it. Isn't if I mean, in general, if I was the government, I'd be talking a lot more about how uncertain everything is. Yeah, exactly. I think that was the problem with with that announcement of Boris's and the Boris Johnson's <laughs> one pound in that jar. It's been a long time since that has happened. <laughs> and the guidance that came out after it was that it was sort of blanket, wasn't it? It was like children in reception year one and year six in England will return to school on the 1st of June. And that sort of, there's that blanket almost like an implied certainty in it, which which obviously shouldn't be there because there are regional differences in the number of infections and and the rate of infection. I know they have to have things to aim for, but sort of blanket announcing that, and as Alva covered very well, the the confusion that followed because the the details weren't available for for a long time after the announcement caused that panic and maybe sort of contributed to to the conflict that we're having now. Well, and then I suppose like the question that, that I then got back from my friends, having asked them what they thought of the possibility of schools reopening, was that they are now just genuinely confused as to whether the government is likely to change its mind and whether they might push that date back. I, w- I was wondering what, what the two of you would say to that question. That's another one where I'd have to say I don't know, to be honest. I mean, I know it's all supposed to be contingent on on certain aims so the test the testing the ability of the nhs to cope um, the r number all of the different factors and i don't think that all of those schools and all of those year groups of those schools that were mentioned in 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 the announcement will be opening on the first of june yeah i don't think there will be a formal u-turn because i think one of the interesting things in this crisis i think has proved is that Politicos care a lot about U-turns and voters don't, provided that the U-turn is done A, quickly, B, into a position they like, and C, is done with kind of grace, essentially, right? Mm -hmm. Because who is the most popular minister in the government? Rishi Sunak. Who is the person who's U-turned the most? Rishi Sunak, right? Admittedly, that's partly because what he's doing is quite difficult, but he also has U-turned with incredible regularity. But I just Mm -hmm. think that because you have a situation where, like, the sort of the full arms of why are you being selfish? These dinosaur unions have been sort of deployed. I can't convince myself of a situation in which there's a kind of like, we regret to inform you that the RA has actually gone up already, or we've realised we can't do X, so it's going to be the 5th of mm. June. I mean, I do kind of think, and I'm intrigued to know what the two of you reckon of this from having talked to other people who are teachers, that in some ways, seeing as there is the cliff edge of the summer holidays, which 
entrench all of the problems that are present because of the lockdown are sort of an annual feature of the education system. And because at the moment teachers are having to work incredibly hard doing distance learning, teaching for the children who are still there. And I suspect purely anecdotally, then that is where you kind of have a double whammy. Then if you have more children of key workers, you also probably have more deprivation. So you end up kind of in this sort of back and forth of, of never of never being able to do both that well then in many ways, I think the sensible solution would, seeing as none of us are going to go on holiday, yeah, none of us can be able to go on holiday, right? It's now essentially been formally confirmed no one is going on holiday in any meaningful sense. To just have the summer holiday now yeah. and just just have a one-off extended term, I think just accepting that this is going to create a weird distended and extended extended time in school for a cohort of children I think probably feels to me like the solution I would be advising towards if I were working for the Secretary of State. Yeah, it's an interesting idea. I, I actually thought that you were going to say that they should continue working over the summer because of because of all the challenges that we've laid out, which is not which is actually not an option I think would be ruled out either. I mean, I think it would be impossible because teachers in many cases continued running those so-called community classrooms where several schools join up to teach the children of key workers. They ran those community classrooms over half term and Easter anyway, so they haven't had a holiday in, in some cases for a while. But you would think that maybe there, there's a there's a possible world in which government would think that having continued online learning throughout the summer would be a way of mitigating some of the effects of not having in-person teaching for the months before the summer. And the only thing I would worry about, because I think that idea of bringing the summer holiday forward, obviously, you know, is would be beneficial to a lot of people and also buy time. But the one thing that I would worry about would be what's put in place. So one primary school was described to me by someone as essentially a food bank now, because not many pupils were going in, but they were providing the, the hot meals for, for those who couldn't afford it. If you put those schools on summer holiday... How do you ensure that they carry on? Because holiday hunger was already an issue before before coronavirus. How do you ensure that they carry on with that when people are in a much more economically precarious situation and sort of food bank use has rocketed? So you forget about all the different sort of functions that schools have taken on and had taken on in the first place. You know, schools are sometimes described as the fourth emergency service because they're the only place that's basically open and safe for a child that might not have access to other services or, or or in places where where there's been very deep local authority cuts so they don't have the sort of social support network that, that they should do who's there for them their teachers so I don't know if they go on holiday at this time when people are suffering the economic blow of coronavirus in this sort of fresh very harsh way then I'd worry about that function disappearing. But of course, that's not really school's fault. It shouldn't really be their job to do that. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Now it's time for a section we like to call You You Asked Asked Us. And today we've got a question from Maria. Thanks for writing in, Maria. If the 2019 Lib Dem general election campaign was a high-speed car crash, what could they have done better? So this refers to the party's internal report into what went wrong in the election campaign. The headline critique from that is that it was a high-speed car crash. Stephen, you've read it. Does it really make for that depressing reading? Yeah, I think it's a really good report. And although parties have done things like this before, it's the first time that, to my knowledge, they have published one. And so fair play to them. And hopefully that will, for them, they'll get the benefit of that from their leadership election and it will inform the debate in it. So I think I would say it is broadly accurate. There is obviously inevitably an as- an element of hindsight being 2020. And it has some very sensible institutional reforms. So the thing it broadly kind of says is, look, the party never really decided whether or not it was a political project to maximise the number of Liberal Democrat MPs or to stop Brexit. And in the end, it kind of went, why not both? And didn't achieve either very effectively. The problem in many ways, though, is the report doesn't really and can't, by definition, conclude which one of those it wants. There's a slight incoherence to it. And then sometimes it feels like they're saying, if only the Lib Dems had had a more fudged Brexit policy, they could have got a few more people in St Ives to vote for them, which would have meant they could have then stopped Brexit, which you just think, well, guys, isn't this the political approach that, okay, yeah, it gained seats in 2005, but isn't this the political approach that meant that the coalition was so politically painful for you? And do you really want to go back to that kind of, we're opportunists, we say whatever we like locally, you know, like, there are a lot of interesting questions and it, le- it, by definition, has to leave unanswered that hopefully will form the kind of spine of their leadership contest. And Alva, you spoke to loads of Lib Dems after the election result last year, didn't you? So mm-hmm. do your conversations then chime with the report's conclusions? Yes. I mean, so full disclosure that I haven't read the election review cover to cover yet. I've just sort of read the important bits. I think so. I mean... When I when I wrote it up, that was a sort of collation of of lots and lots of different MPs' views and other candidates who'd been involved and so on. And so, like, not all of their instincts about what went wrong were exactly on the mark. But I think the the broad ideas were correct. I mean, I think the report seems to to me to answer the the original question. I think the report seemed to me to sort of identify an easy problem and a hard problem in terms of what they could have done differently. So aside from all the sort of trickier stuff about like how much you position yourself as a party that stops Brexit and how much you are just there to increase the number of Lib Dem MPs, I think that there was a problem which could have been easily fixed in theory, which was like there was poor decision making in terms of 
Lib Dem HQ often working in silos, often the leader, Joe Swinson, or her team making decisions without consulting more widely. And they're, they're therefore being a culture within which smaller strategic decisions couldn't be challenged if they turned out not to be going well. So I think one of the things that came up all the time when I was speaking to MPs off record was the problem of the sort of prime ministerial campaign, the idea of of Joe Swinson being the next prime minister which even you know even people I know who who aren't very interested in politics did pick up on that as a sort of embarrassing line and we're talking about it after the election things like that when it was clear that that wasn't going down very well possibly like due to sexism because that is a line that Lib Dems have used before with other candidates when it was when it became clear that that wasn't going well I think that because of the way decisions were being made there wasn't a culture where that could be communicated back to Joe Swinson or changed in a in a relevant way so I suppose like looking at that decision making during an election and more generally is the easy problem that they could have worked on but then there's the big problem that they identify which is a lack of vision which is huge and you know they, they talk about how liberal democrats are very good at talking to themselves but not very good at talking to the electorate and so I mean, working out how they communicate a sense of what what being a Liberal Democrat means and what the Liberal Democrats can deliver is huge and I think very difficult, which is why having a my sense when I was when I was speaking to them all for that long read was that they really, really needed a a leadership election to to hash those questions out. You know, as we've said before on the podcast, there are lots and lots of new members who think that it's it's largely a pro-European enterprise and then there are longer standing liberal democrat members who are members due to a sort of more fundamental understanding and appreciation of liberalism and i think that different candidates for the leadership have different ideas about how they would communicate a liberal message to the electorate but clearly like there wasn't a cohesive sense of how to do that in the 2019 election and particularly I mean they they mentioned on several occasions in that report a sort of lack of a relevant message for BAME communities by having having a sense of what they can offer people in general was really crucially missing and that's like a huge question for a political party. So one of my yeah I want to make you guys think overall it's a very good and useful report but I think one of my objections to it is that I felt that it it heaps a lot of criticism on the leadership team of Joe Swinson. A lot of it fair, but also equally, they ain't going to lead them into another election. Who cares? At the expense of ignoring the fact that a lot of those problems are problems driven by other bits of the party, not least the members who are ultimately the people who vote for and set policy. You know, all of the endless committee meetings they complained about having to have midway through the election. Yeah, I think it's ultimately like... It's if the Lib Dems have a problem with vision, it, Lord knows it's not because they have a lack of policy. And in another way, I think one of the one of the things they're going to have to have a serious conversation with themselves about going forward is that, in many ways, right, the stuff about oh, the the inner circle of the leadership wasn't sufficiently responsive, right. I think the fact that they ended that campaign with the message that some people wanted them to begin it with, which was if we stop the Tory majority, Brexit won't happen rather than getting into any kind of weird theology about who do you go into coalition with, who do you do this with. I think that broadly does validate all of that stuff. But most of the other problems they had were problems than the Brexit policy 
is a 2016 inheritance from Tim Farron. Yeah, the thing that the report refers to obliquely but does not name about where they talk about relevance, I think is because some members of the board felt, you know, the, the kind of the working group felt that the interview that Joe Swinton gave about trans issues was an example of them getting pulled off onto, you know, less relevant thinking bodies. But that's not because they had a, like, on their grid, they had a let's have a row about this issue slot. It's because Lib Dem party members voted to put it in policy. And if they want that to be the policy, they're going to have to defend the policy. And if they want the leader not to talk about non-relevant issues, in inverted commas, then they need to remove those policies from, from the policy book. And I think you know, the slightly weird thing is the Lib Dem leadership election is this theatre in which members act like they are picking someone who chooses policy, who doesn't choose policy. Then the leader essentially gets handed a trunk of policy and is told, make make this work. <laughs> Which I don't think is a particularly effective way to run a political party. Yeah, that's and that also that is an eternal problem with with the structure of the Lib Dems, isn't it? You can't you can't pin that on the leadership, really. Like I, I do think from going around the country, and I'm sure you both found this too during that election. It was it was notable how that push and pull between the grassroots and the and the central party was just so pronounced in that election because you know on the one hand you had Chukarumuna speaking for the Lib Dems, you know about mainly about the EU and Brexit. And then on the ground, you had these local parties that, you know, had absolutely no connection to to this sort of new, shiny, new friends of, of, the, of the Lib Dems in London. I remember there was one local Lib Dem party who were just horrified at trying to be sort of strong-armed into the, what was it called, the People's Alliance or something, you know, where they tried to get people to stand down in certain seats to ensure a sort of pro-Europe candidate had the best chance mm. possible. That kind of thing goes down so badly with local parties, but particularly Lib Dem local parties who, it's the cliche, but they they know their local area so well and they've been working it for decades, you know, and they probably have more in common with, you know, they might even have more in common than UKIPers than the new European, for example. Oh, I agree about the disconnect between the overarching message and then the grassroots message. Thinking back to the one of the few success stories of that election campaign, which was the Lib Dems gaining a fourth seat in Scotland in North East Fife with Wendy Chamberlain. I remember being, I went and joined her canvassing for a couple of days and I thought it was really, really striking the way she didn't explicitly diverge from any policies, but like there was a different message in her local campaign where she was just incredibly friendly on the doorstep and basically she was like oh you know we're pro-union and pro-europe give us your vote and that was it and like obviously the the exact politics in Scotland are a bit different but just this vague idea of being pro-europe without necessarily you know stopping Brexit or I, I think that she sidestepped that and Joe Swinson was never brought up intentionally on do- on doorsteps and like if she if she was brought up on doorsteps by people who were being canvassed it wasn't necessarily in a positive way but yeah I think on the broader point I, th- I think you're right Stephen that as Liberal Democrat members they have extra autonomy and say in how their party is run and therefore some cul- culpability is with the members who who do make the policy but I think that, that that ultimate conclusion, even though it's a sort of vague one, that they had a lack of vision is is probably broadly right in that certainly I don't know what, what the two of you think, but my feeling is is from from being at Liberal Democrat Conference and from 
speaking to Liberal Democrat MPs and candidates and so on, you get a much more inspiring and invigorating case for liberalism and what that means and a sense of those values when you interact with those people directly than you ever do when you see the Liberal Democrat leader being interviewed on TV or mm. you see their policies being characterized in the news. And so I think that, I mean, there, there is something strange about how Liberal Democrats feel so passionately about being Liberal Democrats and not being in one of the two main parties, at least in England. And yet they struggle to make that case for it. Or even, you know, I don't think a lot of my friends would know what liberalism really means. Like the ones who are less political wouldn't be able to explain it. And I think that's definitely a case that they need to work out how they'll make for the next election. Yeah, I guess, because I think, so one of the other inevitable problems that the report has, right, is that ultimately they are the third party by vote in the United Kingdom. Their leader designate in the minds of most swing voters, particularly in the Liberal Conservative battleground, is the Labour leader. And their political strategy is constrained by what the broadcasters particularly the BBC, opt to do or not to do in terms of televised debates, access to, you know, to various things. You know, Joe Swinson was basically told, for instance, you have to, you, you know, you will do all of these things or you'll get nothing, which obviously was not the political position that Boris Johnson found himself in. And I kind of think in some ways, right, there is, there's always a slight pro- risk, I think, to the Liberal Democrats of thinking that if they just had like a bit more vision and talked about liberalism more, then these structural problems the party faces can just be willed away through sort of force of will. While also, I guess, you know, and this is obviously a deeply command and control attitude to have, I guess the thing is, is obviously it was very successful for the party to that they were able to campaign as different things in different parts of the country up until the point they took office when it became a disaster. And I guess the slight weirdness of the report, and I think the interesting question of their leadership election is, do they want to go back to that sort of opportunistic, with this in this part of the country, mm-hmm. with that in this part of the country? Or do they want to try and win, win power for a series of positions and values? And that is, I guess, the big unknown about this leadership election, wherever it happens. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleagues, Stephen Bush and Alba Ray. We're produced by Nick Hilton, and our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. 
follow Electoral Dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>